Welcome to the Agile Wire, where professional scrum trainers Jeff Boobles and Jeff Molesky discuss agile topics. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Boobles and Jeff Molesky. And we are recording. All right, Mr. Boobles, kick us off, man. All right. So this week on the podcast, we got Cliff uh, Hazel. He He's um, here to talk to us about flight levels. Um, and why why we should all care about those, and and maybe we're going to get in some systems thinking things. But a little background about Cliff. Cliff is uh, was an agile coach at Spotify, actually a cha- agile a chapter lead, so a leader of agile coaches for four and a half years. Um, recently founded Flight Level Academy um, with a couple other folks, um, and has really been helping organizations think more systematically and how to connect um, different, different types of agile inside of their organization together to really start delivering value. So I don't know, Cliff, let's, let's jump into it. Thanks for jumping into the, into the podcast, but yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, Love to be here. Let's, let's just start with what is a flight level? Cause some people might not have heard that term before. So sure. let's just start there. So flight levels is kind of in response to a lot of organizations uh, doing agile within the company and often being very focused on the team level. Uh, And kind of the metaphor for this is if you think about an organization as lots of different keys on a keyboard, uh, often what we do is we try to kind of optimize how fast each team presses one key that they're specialized for, uh, rather than how do we write letters, which is usually what the customer actually wants. Um, and so what we realized is that in order to be able to do this, you actually need to think about the organization at several different layers or levels. Uh, and this is where the metaphor of flight levels comes from. Uh, so if you think about it, if you fly close to the ground, uh, sort of a low flight level, you see quite a lot of detail, uh, but not a lot of breadth. Um, you can't sort of see far into the future or anything like that. Uh, but if you fly really high, you get to see quite a lot of breadth and you can sort of see the whole lay of the land, uh, but you can't see any detail of any particular team or maybe of any particular project or something along those lines. Um, Of course, the point is not that one is better than the other, but you actually need to kind of combine. And in flight levels, we talk about it as three levels. So at the top, usually organizations have a strategy. Uh, At the bottom, you have something like operations where we make stuff and build things. Uh, And in the middle, uh, we call it coordination, which is usually connecting the dots between multiple teams or connecting the dots between the strategy and the teams. Uh, And so it's both up or vertical uh, kind of coordination and horizontal. Uh, So does that answer the question? What is the flight level? Yeah, Um, yeah. That's... So some people might be thinking, okay, this sounds a little bit like a Kanban flow or a value stream or something like that at multiple levels. Yeah. Yeah. And so tell me more, like same principles, right? We're worrying about flow throughout the organization at all levels. Yes. Is that like the main concept? Yeah, so, so a lot of the people that we work with actually come from uh, the flight levels or from the, the Kanban community. Uh, Klaus, uh, who is uh, the co-founder along with myself and Katrin, uh, he, he's been a, a big person in the Kanban community for a while, read, written, not read. Uh, he has also read some books, but he also wrote a few books, um, <laughs> uh, which is, uh, you know, it's nice to give back, I guess, and, and write something, not just read everything. Um, but yeah, there's a very strong influence from Kanban. Um, there's also a lot of stuff just kind of from Agile in general, although I would say Flight Levels is not exclusively focused on trying to make the organization agile. Uh, that usually is kind of the lens through which people are wanting to make improvements. Um, and so it could be through the lens of digital transformation. It could be more customer, being more customer-centric. It could be being more responsive to the market, uh, something along those lines. Um, but you're totally right. It, it it does often look quite similar to putting uh, a, a sort of a Kanban system at multiple levels. Um, we call it slightly differently because I think there's a lot of stuff in Kanban and also in Scrum uh, that 
maybe are more than what we need to do flight levels. Um, and some people will use those extra things anyway in their organization, but we don't necessarily find it always as, as relevant um, if you're doing uh, sort of a simple uh, flight levels set up within your, in your business. So yeah, uh, lots, of, lots of overlap, uh, but also a few key differences. Quick break. We know you can't support all shows, but when you do support a show, think of the Agile Wire when you subscribe and share. Cliff, yeah. as you were as you were talking and, and really kind of describing those different levels, uh, immediately what came to mind, and I had to go and Google it on my other screen, was safe. Uh, and so it, it's been a long time since I've taken a, a, a safe class, probably like four or five years now. But I had something, a very similar type of implementation there. I'm even looking at the picture, right? You've got the three levels, kind of different sure. levels of visibility into the organization. So what, uh, it, and I'm making an assumption that you're probably familiar with safe to a certain degree. And I'd be kind of curious, like, what's, what's the difference? Like, why not? Hey, I mean, this, this has got a pretty picture. All I got to do is plug some shit in here and I'm going to be safe from my organization. Why would, you know, what, why not go with safe versus flight levels? Yeah. I, I, I get this question quite often. People are like, well, you know, we're already doing safe. Why would we need flight levels or we're considering one or the other, which one should we pick? Um, I, I mean, I, I think a lot of it depends on the, on the problem you're trying to solve or the situation you find yourself in. Um, there's two main things where I see people using flight levels uh, in kind of either an alternative or in addition uh, to SAFE. Uh, the main one is that often what happens with SAFE is that you find that the, the organization has many different parts uh, that are all doing something a little bit like SAFE, maybe in slightly different versions or slightly different variations. Uh, but what you want to do is start to then connect those parts together. So you have some area that's doing safe, some is doing uh, scrum, some is doing a, general, a traditional waterfall, some does something else in procurement or whatever. Uh, and so Flight Levels is trying to focus on connecting all of those parts together in a way that is helpful. Uh, not everybody in procurement needs to talk to everybody in finance and everybody in marketing and product development, uh, but some people might from time to time. Uh, so let's look at how that, that, that works. Um, and the other part is, I think, in a situation where people are saying, well, uh, we were sort of interested in what SAFE is doing. It sounds like it could be a place that we might end up, but we don't want to spend millions of dollars to train the entire organization as the first step. Uh, we would rather start and kind of iterate and experiment a little bit. And so uh, you kind of joke a little bit is that like flight levels is sort of, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's it's kind of a cheap alternative sort of thing, but it's certainly cheaper than a lot of uh, things that are out there in the market. You can start with one or two teams. You can start with the smallest area of the organization. Uh, and what we specifically focus on is trying to get really good kind of results for the focus or change that you make. Uh, so don't don't change all the things to fix a simple problem that's actually maybe just a coordination issue. You don't need to redesign everything, restructure everything, have tons of new roles, uh, whatever. So in that situation, if you feel more comfortable with kind of a, you know, take what you need or kind of a buffet sort of style approach, you pick the bits that are relevant. Um, and if you like something, you can get more of it. If you don't need it, then move on to the other thing. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but I yeah. think at least for me, that's 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 kind of part of what it's about. Yeah. When I th when I think of a spectrum of like um, how heavy or I don't know how many parts there are to scaling. If you look at like safes on one end, and then you've got other things that are very lean on the other side, I put flight levels way on the right. You know, maybe similar yeah. similar to like less or nexus. Like they're they're sure. trying to take the minimal but sufficient approach to get going and and um, 
and handle whatever coordination you need to do, remove whatever coordination you need to, you can remove, you know, whatever, whatever makes sense to you. And I think that there's a very, it's not a very dogmatic approach where sometimes if you go way to the left, like maybe some of the times in the safe community, it's like, you have to do it because safe says to do it this way. And yeah. a little bit over here, it's like, let's pick the things that work for us in this community. And there's lots of different practices and principles, right. That you can use. Yeah. I think that there's another piece to that, which is also that we we try to only teach things that we have actually done uh, and that we've found to be useful, rather than saying this is a pattern that you should always use in your company. Because I I don't think there are silver bullets or one size fits all kind of approach. Um, and I think um, what what I've often seen is a situation where you've got somebody trying to teach somebody something about product management, but they've never been a product manager. Uh, I rather say, well, if I haven't done the role, let me rather not teach you from theory. I would rather teach you from practical experience. Uh, and so all of the the folks who are using Flight Devils and teaching it, um, they've actually done this or they are doing it in organizations. It's not kind of it's not kind of coming from a, you know, we dreamed it up sort of uh, and maybe this could be helpful. It's we've actually tried it. Um, and so I, I think that's also um, can be a bit of a difference sometimes is that, you know, yeah, that just a slightly different approach. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you were talking earlier, you were, you highlighted like what, what are, what are those things that we're seeking to improve in our organization? I think you had, had said maybe like coordination costs or coordination across teams, et cetera. Um, I would imagine like one of the first things that you're trying to do is, is baseline. And as an organization who's attempting to change, like your first thing to do is baseline and understand what your goals are. Like, what are the things that we want to focus on? Are yeah. there, so for, for uh, flight levels, is there kind of an, I don't want to say like out of the box, but like kind of standard goals that typically you're going after? I would imagine there's a focus on getting the right things done quicker, like, right, like understanding what it is, the problems that we're trying to solve for our customers. And typically those are solutions that we're trying to get in front of them and the speed at which it takes for that solution to move through our system. So kind of like those yeah. two core pieces, but is, is, is there something else that you recommend starting with, or are there other common things that you find like organizations are trying to pinpoint and improve on? Sure. Um, so there's kind of two ways to answer this question. So one is like about talking about the goals generally, and the other is about some examples of common goals. Um, I, I think it's very helpful. And one thing that we spend quite a lot of time, especially if you're doing it inside a company, but even in a public sort of class kind of context, uh, is getting folks to have a conversation about what actually is the goal. Uh, because I've been amazed at how often you get anything more than one person. And even often when it's one person, they actually haven't yet picked what the goal is. And then you put more people in the mix. And now there's three or four different conflicting goals. And what do we actually mm -hmm. mean by the thing we're trying to, to do? So there's that sort of meta alignment, kind of making sure that you are. Are we still allowed to say the word meta? Because this other stupid company has <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> abused it. Um, I, I still like the word. I think it has a useful context, but like, yeah, I don't like that company so much, but anyway. Um, yeah. Uh, so there's, there's that sort of kind of uh, in a different way, kind of looking at, at sort of setting goals and targets. And the other side is, I think quite correctly, as you say, uh, very often people want to try to do something faster um, and Part of what we try to get people to see is that it's it's not about kind of pushing the A key faster to make the letter come out. It's actually about getting the right people or the right teams doing the right thing at the right time. Um, and in most cases, you, you can actually work a hell of a lot less on an individual and on a team basis uh, and produce substantially higher results. It's not it's not about productivity at all, mm -hmm. um, although, you know, the, the outcomes will come out quicker and you might be able to produce more with less. 
Um, it's getting rid of all of the wasted things that are sitting around unfinished, lying around on people's desks and in their inboxes, on their Trello boards and wherever else they're sitting um, that have been waiting there for 18 plus months, as I often find in organizations. You know, Huge amounts of energy went into something that we thought made sense two years ago. We're still building it. We're not sure. We weren't even that sure that it made sense or, or that it made that much sense at the start. Uh, and yet we're still busy doing it. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting one. I don't know. Maybe if you got, you guys see this kind of stuff in, in yeah. you know the context that you're working as well? Yeah, I think that the three things that people are generally looking for is they want to balance between efficiency, effectiveness, and predictability. And you know, part of that, yeah, it's time to market or reducing risk, or there might be other yeah. things they might say, but generally it's those three things and they want something to help them with that. And I think to what you were saying before, we think efficiency is the answer to get the other two. But generally, we're way, already being way too efficient, and we're not effective or predictable because of that. Exactly. That's exactly what you're saying. You're starting a lot of stuff. You're keeping everybody very busy inside of your organization. And things are getting yeah. older and older because they just sit and wait in queues because we hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait. You know? Yeah. Because th that's the part of the challenge, and I think, is that we, we're usually only capable of seeing the world from our own perspective. Uh, because, you know, we're literally looking with our own two eyes. Um, and it's much harder to kind of zoom out and see the broader perspective of all well, the three of us work in a team together and all three of us are super busy, but none of the things that we're all focusing on or that we're actually caring about as a whole group are getting done that fast because we're just working on six different projects and passing things around and producing extra work. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, you, you do need to get better at actually delivering in order to be able to achieve, you know, you, know, you need an output in order to be able to have an outcome. Uh, but ultimately, it's the outcome. Uh, and this one is interesting for me. Like you mentioned, the, the predictability. I, I think it is often a thing. But, you know, a company like Tesla doesn't come about uh, and invent the future by trying to be predictable. I mean, they need maybe on a supply chain level some predictability. But the ideas that they put in their cars uh, are probably not predictable, um, it, at least to some extent. And it's an interesting topic to open up. Is how do you balance yeah. this kind of uh, capitalizing on new opportunities as they emerge? Um, versus trying to be predictable and efficient. But I would say that they're predictably delivering something. Uh, mm. We had Joe Justice on the podcast a few months ago, and uh, he worked at Tesla for a while. Uh, sure. And he was talking about how they do three-hour three, three hour sprints, basically, at Tesla. 12-hour days, three-hour sprints. Every single sprint, you deliver something to done. And it's like, well, there's predictability in that they know every three hours, each of these teams are going to be delivering something that's valuable, and then they can use uh -huh. it, and hopefully they get some value from that, or more, more cars, more predictability and parts and timing, whatever the thing might be that they're trying to, they're trying to do. Yeah. And so I think there's a level of predictable. It's not like I know exactly where I'm going to be you know, 12 months from now. It's I know I'm going to have delivery and choices, and I have multiple choices, and because I have those choices, I can get feedback and then learn faster than yeah. everybody else. Right. That's the kind of predictability we're talking about. I think that's exactly right. the kind of thing that I, I often like to unpack with others and try to get a sense of when you say predictability and efficiency, what what do we actually mean by those things? Not not because I want to debate semantics, but just my assumption about it and yours and somebody else's are going to be slightly overlapping, but not the same thing. Uh, and so how do we zoom in on, OK, well, when we say efficiency or uh, predictability, let's be sure we're talking about the same thing and, and perhaps even put some sort of a, a descriptor or a number to it. You know, mm -hmm. here's where we are right now. Um, yeah, something like that can be interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, 
from just a Kanban standpoint, I really like just looking at service level expectations and what does that 85% look like or 95, whatever number we want to look for. And then looking at that at multiple levels, I think can be really valuable teams. Like from mm. a flight level standpoint, like I just want to see whatever that we're measuring is if it's features, epics, however we're looking at it in our organization. I want to see these things at a certain level being delivered. If it's, we're talking our 85 is multiple years. That seems like a problem to me. Like, and that's where some sure. organizations are, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> for the most part. Yeah. And I think that's the thing is, is a big part of it is being able to understand. And this is sort of where for me, the, a lot of the systems thinking comes in is that if, if you don't have some sense of the current dynamics of the system and the capabilities of the system, it's quite hard or quite unlikely that you will design a change or improvement that, that is going to have a positive effect. Um, you end up changing stuff, but it, it's not necessarily the case that because you took out a problem that whatever you replaced it with is naturally better. Um, you know, if you've ever gone to a very uh, dodgy mechanic, you would know exactly how that works is that you get a bunch of parts replaced, but, uh, you know, a couple of years down the line, even more things are broken. And that's not necessarily what we mean uh, or what we're wanting. So, um, yeah, I think really taking the time to sort of start to get a sense of what actually is happening in the organization. You know, wh where are the challenges? What is it? Is it is it the teams not being fast enough? Is it somehow, you know, connections between the teams for communication? Uh, is it the product doesn't perform well enough once we deliver it? You know, would more widgets or more units be better? And to what extent? Um, because it's, you know, it's a dynamic system. It changes. We, we tweak something and then the bottleneck moves and uh, all of those kind of things that play a role. So, yeah, mm -hmm. it's a fascinating space to work in. So when you're thinking systems thinking, because um, that's really what flight levels are all about, right? Like we're looking at the whole system and how do we optimize for whatever that optimizing goal that we want, like we talked about before. It could be multiple different things depending on your organization. Do you find, this is what I find, and I'm just curious if you find the same thing. I find that a lot of times people are looking at secondary and tertiary goals. Like, ah, well, we can't do this because then we've got to share the code across all, or this technology across all these teams. And, you know, that's going to be really inefficient to teach people all that stuff. We should really just have one team and have a queue back up so we can keep these people busy. Like, those, that's kind of the, the logic I hear. Or it's not safe for us to give this people the access to this. Um, do you find the same type of things where it's like people are focusing on and maybe for the CIA, it's okay, like uh, <laughs> risk and like security, like I'm okay, we're okay with that. But like for most product teams out there, that's not your optimizing goal. It's really learning yeah. and, you know, and, and and how do we get more to market to learn faster? And so that's going to be a constraint if you put that in place. Like Totally. Like that. And I don't think it's super surprising because the vast majority of teams that I've seen don't have any kind of customer contact. And I don't mean that you have to talk exclusively and directly to your customer, but they, they don't necessarily even have any kind of customer metrics or like, I mean, even something as kind of vague or, I mean, put aside my opinions about MPS, but something that tells you like, do people like your product or do they not like your product? Like, do, do you even know that? Um, and I mean, I've done work with a couple of insurance companies and banks and stuff, and it's just, you, you, you get incentivized because you deliver the thing on time. And then what happens after it's done? No, nobody even knows what happened. Like, did, did the people who you built it for even try to use the feature? Did they even get it? No, we don't know. It's somewhere in the deployment pipeline. And maybe maybe they got it. Maybe they didn't. Maybe it's there, but somebody discovered it by mistake. You know, those kind of things. So uh, I, I totally see these kind of um, like secondary or tertiary or even like proxy metrics for things. You mm -hmm. know, deliver in time, but... I don't know what happened. So, 
and it's a balance. Like you can't focus too much on on just uh, the outcomes because you'll end up, I think, often just sort of theorizing and thinking about what problem are we solving. At some point, you actually have to then say, okay, we decide we're going to do this thing, and then you do it, and then you find out what happens at the end. But if you're tacking on your instrumentation or your metrics and measurement as an afterthought rather than something saying, well, you know, can I sketch it on a piece? One of my favorite things, I don't, I don't know if you ever came across a guy by the name of Joel Spolsky. Um, he, he wrote uh, several books. Um, Joel on Software was his blog for many years. Um, he actually is one of the co-founders of the company that built Trello originally, if you know uh, the, the app. Um, they yeah. sold it off now to, to another organization. But uh, anyway, he, he talked about this concept of a hallway usability test, which I really liked, uh, which was quite simply uh, write your idea down or sketch it on a piece of paper, build a very light mock-up, go out in the hallway and pick three people at random and show it to them. And if they don't get it, do another pass. Um, you know, And I think it's fantastic is that we, we, we tend to build things quite often and we make some very expensive version of a first version um, and you could just show it to someone in the hallway and they could go, huh? And you go, ah, okay, <laughs> maybe I need <laughs> to do another think of this thing. Um, and, and, you know, that kind of what, thing. What like, is the, the truth curve, Jeff, that I was, think, I was thinking about as Cliff was, who, who did that? Oh, I gotta look I'll put it. you on the spot. I know it's Josh Shiden and I can't remember the other guy's name. Oh, um, anyway, as Jeff is yeah. pulling up, cause he's a wizard with that stuff. Um, that immediately was what I was thinking about, Cliff, as you were talking about. It's like doing the minimal amount of validation as you're going through the discovery process, right? And like that's where your MVPs start to play a part. And even MVPs are more like down that funnel, right? We've already done some initial validation. We've already done the paper prototype like you were just talking about, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and sorry, I know this is a little bit off. Uh, well, it's, it's related to what you were just saying, but it really just made me think about all that waste that we were talking about um, earlier where it's like, understanding the amount of effort that you're putting into something should be correlated with the amount of validation that you've done in the overall process of it. So, um, or in inverse correlation, I think is, um, so if we've done no validation, we should be doing, uh, no effort to actually building the thing. Um, as we do more and more validation, then we putting more and more effort into actually building out the full, uh, implementation of whatever the solution is that we're going after. Yeah. I, I think that totally makes sense. And trying to get some sort of a sense of like, are, are we at least like, I, I think the risk is that people end up in a space where you kind of have to prove your idea before you build it almost. Um, and the, the reality is that almost no really great ideas or revolutionary ideas were provable in advance. I mean, it, Tesla is a prime example of this. Like if you tried to tell people that Tesla would do what they did and you'd be talking to a bunch of car execs, I mean, even today, probably if you talk to people at BMW and Audi, they were going, nah, I'm not sure that Tesla's on the right direction um, or resisting it mm -hmm. for certain reasons. Um, but that's the thing is that you, you you can't prove it in advance, but you can at least get some sort of a smell that like, yeah, we're going in the right general direction. Um, or is it actually usable and understandable as opposed to like, you know, market fit is separate from usability kind of thing, but just a, a simple case of like, if we did it like this, do people get what we mean? Um, and you might find out something interesting as a result of that. So, yeah. yeah. I was going to say, like, I don't know that I would say Tesla didn't have a plan. Like, there is a model that they said, there's the sure. master plan. You know, Elon's like, we're going to build a really expensive car. 
and it's going to be fast. It's going to be sporty. And then we're going to use the money that we make if we make from that to build a little less expensive car, but still going to be pretty expensive for the general public. And then we're going to use the money from that to build the, you know, the next one. Like he kind of yeah. had a plan of how he was going to get there. And it was sure. going to be different because it was going to, you know, this is going to be a very performance car, not, not a, you know, what we all think of as a, an electric car now, you know, like, or, you know, so, yeah. or what we used to. So I think he had a plan. I think I, I don't remember all the phrasing of all the stuff, but he had a very detailed plan of like, this is how it's going to work. And then he'd done it on other companies or something similar. And so people are like, okay, I can buy it on that. Let's, let's see you do it, <laughs> you know, give it a shot. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just a couple more things, just what we were talking about before. So Jeff, you were talking about Jeff um, Gothoff, Gotham, uh, and then Jeff, Gotham, yep. And then Josh Seiden, sorry. Yeah. And then the no, and then the truth, the truth curve, curve yeah. that was um, that's gift constable. Gift, so, that's what it is. Yeah. Okay. But, but there's lots of stuff in there. I think they both talk about it. Uh, Josh and Jeff talk about it in their books too. They they reference the truth curve multiple times, mm. and, and they talk about in their classes and stuff that they do. So one of the one of the other more tactical examples that I'd like to to talk about was, uh, and, and Jeff, you were I think you were part of this initiative a while ago. We were both at the same consulting uh, group. And we were helping um, a big power tool company uh, implement Bluetooth on their across their entire tool line. I mean, huge, huge initiative. And um, I, I distinctly remember two things that we did early on in validation was uh, the first thing was we were doing some user user study groups or uh, I forget the proper term for it, but just going out and trying to understand their customer. Uh -huh. And one of the first things that they were thinking about doing was building their own like hardware piece that would interact with all of these devices. And so we we send our UX wizard out there, they're interviewing. And like one of the very first things he notices, like all these people that are on a job site, they're all wearing gloves. None of them are going to use your, your touchscreen uh, little application that's too small, that's going to fall and break on the job site, et cetera. And like, I, I can only... I can't fathom the amount of money that that saved the organization right there from going down this path where we're going to custom build our own piece of hardware. It's going to have a touch interface, all this stupid shit. But um, the other thing, though, when we actually got to to implementation, was we we were we were um, the the mobile team, so we were we were doing the iOS implementation, and we were coordinating with the hardware team, actually building the Bluetooth technology directly into the power tools. And I, I distinctly remember the end of sprint one. So two weeks into this thing, um, our goal was to simply integrate. So we had uh, a hardware, uh, it was called a crimper. If you're not familiar, just like, it looks like a claw, pressures the shit out of something, you know, like stupid oh, amount of pressure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so all the end of sprint one was, was integrating those two things. So the device did a crimp. We, we, connected it to an iPhone and we displayed a green or a red at the end of that, right? Like that was it. And, you know, we had a lot of higher level people sit around and kind of like, that's it. That's all you're showing me. I'm like, yeah, but did you, did you just notice the fact that we had a complete end to end validation, right? Within two weeks, we were able to validate that we can get something from a piece of hardware and display it on a device, right? Like normally you don't get that for six, eight, 12 months into a project. And if you don't, oh, surprise, you've got an integration project hiding at the end there because now we built this silo up over here and we got to make it talk to this silo over here. Um, and then we just iterated on top of that. But just, you know, it, it I, I like that. It's not exactly discovery, but it is that iterative approach of validating functionality earlier on, right? Getting yeah. that risk out of your system and then simply building on top of it. Yeah. 
And, and I think that's exactly kind of the point uh, other Jeff was talking about uh, Tesla and them having a plan. And I think the point was in that situation, they knew what the high risk factors were. If we can't get this thing right, like, I mean, and, and a first prototype of something is always going to be expensive, right? It's going to cost more than the thing will cost in reality. So why not go for the people who will pay a lot of money or have a lot of money to buy something like this and be a bit experimental in the first place? I, I think that plan, that that, that was brilliant. Um, and, it, and exactly like you were saying with this, um, you know, testing the crimping device, it, it makes sense that you try to find the place where you actually can have some leverage because if you're just experimenting and kind of doing a bunch of different things, uh, but you've kind of validated all of the really easy stuff here on the side, you know, you as you said, like you've got a, an integration project hiding in the background uh, that's going to come and bite you in the ass in, in a few weeks later uh, or a few months later. Um, I, I think it's really fascinating when you get into the space because a lot of people will talk about these things as if it's like you always need a plan or you never need a plan or you always need to know this or you never need to know that. It, like it always... And I, I hate the answer, but it, it does depend, but it depends a little bit on what, what is the organization trying to achieve. And, and that for me is always the starting point with this kind of stuff. Like what, what is your actual, you know, back to your first question about what is the goal? Uh, what are we trying to achieve here? You know, are we trying to make it easier to scale this stuff? Are we trying to reach a billion users or, you know, 200? Because it, it matters. It, it really does matter. Uh, and if we if we misunderstand the the sort of circumstances that we have, I, I I do this example where I say like you know if I hold up this phone, it doesn't work so well on video because you you obviously can all see the same side, uh, but if we were in an auditorium or something, I would see one side, you would see the other. We all know that it's an iPhone, but we see different parts of it, um, and this is a little bit of what Flight Devils is trying to do. But I think also in a sort of a getting customer feedback perspective, what you're trying to do is see the other sides of the problem, like. You know, if actually building it at any scale is going to be a huge challenge, um, say like you know COVID vaccines, for example, uh, maybe you need to kind of get out ahead of that because you know you're going to need some kind of manufacturing capability in advance. And so, as a parallel thread, you're experimenting: can we build the thing at scale? While at the other side, you're trying to validate what the hell do we even build? Um, and so, knowing something about what are the challenges that you face is really, I think, a super important thing, and often very much misunderstood in this case because. I think most of us work in a space where we're we're just kind of given something to build rather than a problem to solve, uh, and that for me is missing a, a huge trick for the organization because you will probably get something built, uh, and you may even get it on time and in budget, uh, but will it be useful? Like the biggest the biggest differentiator is completely an asymmetric payoff curve. Like you know, if you get it right, you, you've got the iPhone. If you get it wrong, you go out of business, uh, and <laughs> like. I mean, there's a lot of answers in between those two things, but the further up that curve you can go, that's that's where the high-end benefits and payoffs are. Um, and so we should be looking a little bit at least at this, um, not just you know at that, but also can we deliver it? Um, I think those are sort of two sides of the same coin, uh, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah, yeah, I like what you said there about like different threads. That's how I talk about it too. It's like independent work streams that, yeah, we might be after a similar goal or, you know, like you're talking, like, how do we produce the vaccine and, and what is the vaccine that we're actually going to do? So we might yeah. work on two different work streams at the time. As long as they're independent, that's that's OK. When you have these when you have these conflicts and these dependencies between different work streams, you slow everybody down and you're slowing the whole system down. And we tend to focus on keeping all these people busy as different work streams and moving around so much. 
that you can never really get to anything done. And I think that whole systems thinking approach of like, how do I th- make things more independent as a whole work stream is something that a lot of organizations could look at instead of trying to say, let's get really good at the thing that we do, the writing in this type of API or using this type of coding language or whatever the thing might be. Mm. Let's focus on how do we get this independent work stream to deliver whatever, more effective solutions, more predictability. Like what is the thing that we want there? Yeah. Yeah. And and I think it's sort of to unpack a little bit of the nuance inside there is that one of the challenges with like chasing inefficiency is that if you chase inefficiency, at least, uh, what it usually leads you to do is remove things that are seen as somewhat wasteful. But when you're in a a discovery and exploration kind of stage to trying to find something new or something to improve, uh, there will be waste. There has to be because you like if if you only pick the safe options, which is usually what people will do in a low risk kind of uh, that sort of environment. You pick the safe options. It means you're probably picking things that are not new and novel. Uh, And so they won't they won't sort of change your company drastically as a result or change your product performance as a result. Um, but it means that you know the other way around, you might have some ratio of failure, and you have to be able to absorb that. But you you don't want to bet the company and take a wild risk on every bet. Uh, so knowing when to take a super risky bet or when to kind of have some kind of I don't know maybe a budget limit or whatever on how much money would you spend before you pull the plug on something, like you need to have some sort of control between these. So don't gamble everything, but also don't don't never take a risk either, uh, because you'll you'll end up stuck in both of those two situations if you sort of over, like overplay one hand, I think is kind of the way I would mm-hmm. think about it. Yeah, yeah. being okay with uh, making decisions with incomplete information, but making them faster is better than doing a bunch of analysis and trying to say, yep, we're guaranteed this is going to be the right decision, but we've now spent more than we, way more money to get to that last, you know, 10 or 20% of information that we feel comfortable with. So I think a lot yeah. of organizations can make decisions just with less information and and do a little less analysis and take a step yeah. back. But that means don't do any, I'm not saying don't do anything, but like there's better ways to do some validation there and, you know, maybe make a decision set of with like 95% of the information, make it with 70 or 75, you know, like, sure. and, and if we're wrong more frequently, that's okay. We've, we've, the, mon- the amount of money we were to spend to get that last 20%, we've reinvested that in and we've found out sooner. Now we can make a pivot or yeah. you know, decide not to spend that money or do something else. Yeah. There's a fantastic book uh, I read a couple of years ago called Thinking in Bets uh, by Annie Duke. I don't know if you've heard of this book. Yeah, Um, yeah, it's a good book. And one of the things that she kind of explores, I'm paraphrasing quite a bit here, but um, this idea that somehow playing more hands of poker will make you a better poker player. Uh, And I I think to some level that that might have some element of truth to it that, you know, you're more likely like you have more opportunities to learn at least. But the the actual learning that you take from each hand that you play, I think, is a really fascinating one. And the number of times that I've seen organizations and individuals literally just doing the same thing again and again and again and going, yeah, yeah like we're a learning organization. You're like, what did you learn from the last you know, sprint increment or from your last delivery or your last release cycle? We learned that we have another 100,000 things in the backlog. That's the only thing that we seem to learn sometimes. Um, and that's not necessarily making the situation any better. And granted, you have to balance a little bit. Like you can't spend all your time improving and no time actually delivering. Uh, but if you're not learning, you're missing out on those opportunities. So the benefit of playing more hands doesn't turn into anything if you still only learn one thing from 300,000 hands. Um, so, yeah. 
I, I love this thing of like exploring sort of the nuance of like, well, where are we in this mix? Like, you know, do we need more learning or do we need more speed? Um, and it, it could be a little bit of both, but which one are we going to pick right now? Or how do we choose? It depends, and on, it depends on your product though and maturity and where it's at, you know, like if we're sure. early on, maybe we do just need to try a bunch of stuff. Like if, if we're doing yeah. a new Greenfield product, like I would say you want lots of experiments and we just need to like see some, what's interesting and try some stuff, you know? Um, yeah. I, I just thought of this, uh, reminded of the story, um, um, that, uh, Daniel Vacante and Pradeek put out, it was a blog about don't be a Ditka, but they're not, I don't think they're as avid football fans as I am. So I think I can add a little more color here to it, to our, um, to our listeners. But so it was the, uh, 1999 draft and, uh, the new Orleans saints, uh, decided that they were they're the football team, American football team, and usually gets every team gets seven picks to start the year, and then there's different things that happen. They trade them away. You can lose players, and sometimes you get a pick for it, things to happen. And uh, the one the coach wanted to move from the fifth overall pick to the he was at the twelfth pick to about the fifth overall pick, so he wanted to move up seven picks, and he traded all his picks for that year, seven picks, and then his number one pick and his three pick, third pick for the next year to get that one player, Ricky Williams. He thought he was going to be the big, the best player of all time. He thought he was the next Walter Payton, Payton or Barry Sanders or something like that. Well, he was a good player, but he wasn't phenomenal. Right. And the, the amount of players they missed out on there was crazy only to move up that many picks. Meanwhile, the next year later, this little known guy from Michigan gets picked at 199th. Tom Brady ends up being the greatest player of all time, pretty much. Um, and so it's like 199 people had chances to get this player. And if we knew what we knew, they would have picked them all before that. Anybody would have, even if you had a quarterback, you would have picked them and, and they didn't. And so we don't know these things in product development. It's very similar to this. Like there's a lot more unknowns and knowns, but if I have a lot more picks, I have a better chance of, you know, picking something that's going to work out and finding some people that are going to, that are going to make yeah. the team or take that next jump. And it's and same thing in, in products. I, I think like if you're, if you run a lot of experiments and you're looking at the data and you measure against it, you can, you have an opportunity to make a better decision. Will you make it every time? No, but you're creating an environment of learning and you start creating a habit of likely, learning. Yeah. Yep. And it's more likely to happen. Now we've increased our odds and our predictability of success because we've increased the number of experiments running and the amount of learning that can happen, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think this is something like in, in a flight tables context, what I often try to, because I, I spend a lot of time working with sort of the mid to senior executives within an organization uh, and, and trying to kind of unpack that a little bit and say, okay, well, in this situation, what, what is kind of the portfolio of different bets that we are placing in this in this setting? Um, you know, so it, it might not be that every organization needs to be highly predictable. Some some do, some don't, but there are maybe certain types of work that need high level of predictability. So, you know, you want a, a very fast response time on customer queries in a call center, for example. People like to have their problems resolved. Um, but maybe when you're doing something like building those grand new features that could ship with this, you know, year's release or next year's release uh, of the iPhone, it doesn't matter so much uh, whether it's predictable or not, it's more a case of like, you know, there's a cutoff point and beyond a certain point, it's going to go the following year. Um, and so you need to make that decision. And so having a little bit of those tools to play with to say, well, you know, we're going to spend some time on super risky things. We're going to spend some time on like improving the existing stuff. And then we're going to spend a bunch of time on just running the existing business as it stands. Uh, and how do we split our capacity and capability across that? You know, 
where do we need to be making improvements? Is it actually on the innovation stuff or is it on the efficiency side? And maybe it's a little bit of a spread across both, but it's certainly not like you wouldn't want a situation where one of those was getting in way of the other unless you'd intentionally chosen that to be the case. But the, the typical situation that I see a lot of organizations in is that everybody's kind of fighting for their own piece of the pie, um, not because there's some sort of malicious intent. It's just because I don't know that you have a different goal and, you know, each of you has a different goal. And I'm telling this team, this is the most important thing. And so are both of you. And the team is sitting there going, well, we can flip a coin or we can decide based on other information, which is often some combination of who pays my salary, who do I like the most, or which one will create the most pain if we don't do it. Uh, and those three things tend to not correlate with which one is the best idea. Um, and so finding some way to try to overcome a little bit of that tendency and uh, yeah, just use the real information that's actually available rather than just, you know, it gets a little bit messy otherwise, I think. So, yeah. <laughs> how do, how do flight levels help, help, like help with that? help us see the goals across different teams and when somebody's maybe working towards a different optimizing goal. Cause a lot of times yeah. might, people might think, ah, oh, that team's so hard to work with, but really like the initiative they've been set on and maybe what they're getting paid for or something, you know, there's some, co some compensation there where this is what they've been told to do. And that's why they're working sure. a certain way. Right. There's something else going on. So how does flight levels help reveal maybe that in a system? Yeah. So, so one of the things we try to do is, is identify something that looks a little bit like a value stream or a set of teams that work together to deliver some value. Um, so the scenario would be, say, the three of us work on three different teams or maybe we're you know in that sort of a context. Um, and so what we do is we say, okay, let's get the three of us together to build a visualization at a higher level that designs or, or captures uh, the different aspects of what we're working on. So it might be that we're shipping a set of common projects or some sort of initiatives. It might be that we deal with certain you know, features within a product set, whatever the work is, but there's usually something that kind of connects us together. So sort of the, the layer above the task that we do. Um, and then we try to prioritize those things. And what, what I usually say to folks is that you well, one of the things that I, I really liked that we used at Spotify was this, this heuristic of saying, don't let number three block number one, uh, which is a little bit of sort of shorthand for prioritization. Uh, it's not saying that you have to always work on number one, but if number one is actually number one, it should be that you don't let number three consume the capacity that could help with number one. So simple scenario, um, I need one of you to help me and you're working on number one. I should know not to ask you to come and help me. So it just saves that time and that interruption for both of us. Uh, but similarly, uh, if you need my help and I'm working on number three, I should totally expect that I should switch focus uh, and come and help within you know, some reasonable uh, level of expectation. And so the goal is not to get everybody to do perfectly and 100% always the right answer, but at least to make it visible. Like when we're talking about prioritization, are we talking about this thing or this one? Which one? Uh, and if we have different answers, we're going to create a suboptimal situation. But the closer we can get to prioritizing the same thing consistently, the more likely it is that that one thing will actually move faster through the system. Um, and so it's not about working fast at any step of the process. It's simply about reducing you know, the, the cost and the consequence of the handoffs uh, and the wait times in between. Um, so that a little bit like the airport, you, know, you get a fast track uh, through. 
Um, and yes, that does mean that it makes it slower for everything else, but that's the point. Um, you, you get to pick which one gets the fast track, and that's that's the cool part. Um, but you can't make everything the fast track, otherwise it's no longer a fast track. Um, mm -hmm. That's just the reality. I would say, though, like what I've found is if you really focus on your whip limits and your work mm -hmm. item age across your system, not just at you know the team level, that you can get almost everything to work like an expedite now, like a number one. It just, you have to be disciplined in being okay with things. Some people are, are just not going to be very busy. And I would say, good, go figure out a way to help that team. Like we're only going to work on so many things. And, and that's a really yeah. hard thing for a lot of organizations to do because it's like, I just, I'm paying that payroll. Like I want them to do something. And it's like, but if they start something, then they need to meet with somebody else who's doing the thing that you really think is the most important. Then that thing slows down. But the, sure. and if we're thinking of Andy Duke's thinking in bets, like this is our big bet right here. And now we're pulling that off and we're delaying that, that learning on that big bet. So, you know, it actually hurts you more sometimes to be starting stuff, even though it doesn't feel that way. It sounds very inefficient. Exactly. But sometimes you're okay. It's inefficient is going to lead to better effectiveness and more predictability, yeah. right? So. And I think that's exactly the thing that, and, and I, I don't think that flight levels is the only way to solve this kind of challenge. Um, but what, what it's giving people uh, when we do flight levels in the organization and specifically at, a, you know, when you build a coordination system, it's giving folks a place to go and look at the things that they are actually prioritizing rather than worrying about the details in the team. Uh, and so if you can see the work flowing at the higher level, and that should for most cases, be your focus. Uh, you only end up troubleshooting kind of in the details when it's actually impeding the flow of something that is really high on the priority list. Um, instead of spending your time, you know, where is this project? Where is that project? You can actually know that um, and, and spend your time as a leader or a manager accordingly. And the other part of it is that it, it starts to give everybody in the organization a lot more information. There's a wonderful quote from Don Reinson, uh, he says, if you want to decentralize decision-making, you need to decentralize not only the authority to make the decisions, but the information that's necessary to make good mm -hmm. decisions. Uh, and I think this is often what we do when you build a flight level two system specifically, is that you give people some information that is otherwise remaining hidden inside the manager or the other team's heads. And so now we're all looking at something that is a little bit more like the same picture, and so when I pick what to work on next, it's quite likely that you would also have picked the same thing. Um, and I can make a sort of a collective decision that, that benefits all of us rather than just in the absence of that information. Um, and so when you know the manager shows up with a grand new idea and says, oh, well, I want to do this new project, the question is not who's available. The question is, where does it go in the priority? Uh, and so you can go and put it on your system and say, okay, it's in the queue somewhere and we will start it when we have capacity. Uh, and so, you know, you're actually doing pull at level two and level three, not just in the teams, which is profoundly different to how most organizations do things. It's, you know, it's much more of a, I had an idea, someone's available, so we've started some work. How do we deal with the rest of it? We haven't figured that out yet. And yeah. That's probably not the worst situation if that person is not affecting any of the other projects. But if they happen to be the, you know, your Tom Brady or the person who is kind of the key player uh, in several other projects, um, you're going to have some challenges. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. Yeah. I think uh, one thing I wanted to just key in on that you said, it's because um, some people might have heard hear that differently. Like, oh, so everybody makes a decision all the time. Like we're looking for consensus. And I, I don't think that's what you're saying at all, right? Like you're saying multiple people can make the decision. And because we have the flight levels and the transparency, we understand the priority. Whoever needs to make the decision at that moment can make the, the right decision. 
because right now what happens probably in the organization is like you said, people are making decisions, but it's by whoever's yelling the loudest, whoever is hardest to deal with, whatever the situation might be. There's a lot of emotional decisions being made instead of um, strategic decisions being made. Yeah. Or, or worse, just a, I, I will ignore it and hope it goes away. And, you know, then it's just sitting around waiting, which, I mean, that, that's okay if that's actually an intentional choice. But when it's just a sort of a default of like, well, it's safer for me not to say anything, that's that's a challenge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think the other piece of this is is just to kind of look at it from another angle as well, is also trying to think about what, what type of information do people need to make decisions? Uh, because I think the something that I found quite often at Spotify was um, there was a, almost an oversharing of information. And the problem is then you're kind of drowning in information and you've got to, like, it, it's quite, I mean, I think it's quite a full-time role uh, to spend time thinking about the strategy and the direction of the company. Um, it's not something you can do kind of while also being a software developer. You know, the CEO will have more time to think about strategy than you will. That's quite simple. Um, and so it's not that they, their perspective is the only perspective that should be considered. Um, but if you can try to say, well, as the software developer, they need some parts of this information. Can I make the bits that are relevant to the projects that they work on or the teams that they interact with or the customers that they serve uh, or the specific technologies that they are reliant on, make them aware of those things and give them access to that information rather than trying to fill their heads with everything that I know. Um, and so it, it helps you to say something like, well, you're only working on those two projects, so I don't need to communicate to you about the other 17 because you don't you don't have anything to do with them. Um, and you see this often with teams when they start to do something like scaled agile or they're doing scrum at scale or these sort of things. And I, I don't say it to bash the, the methodologies or anything. It's just that if you don't think about which teams are present in what stand-ups, what communication loops, it ends up that I'm sitting there listening to the two of you talking about projects that I've never, like I, I have no way to influence. And that's not a helpful use of my time. Um, and if you scale that too much, you end up just putting more and more communication overhead into the organization without making anything actually go faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we try to do is design a way that says, and, and we spend a lot of time talking about the agile interactions, as we call them in flight levels. How do we get the right people talking to the right people at the right time? Um, not everybody talking to everybody all the time, because mm-hmm. it's counterproductive, you know? Um, I don't have enough brainwaves uh, or, or cognitive ability, to, uh, cognitive load at least available to be able to listen to every possible story that the organization uh, has to tell me. So let's pick the right ones. As you were, <coughs> excuse me, as you were talking about that, um, n- not directly related, but something you had mentioned about uh, over communication. And one of the things, so we recently got a new president um, and he comes from uh, the Amazon space. And one of the things that he's bringing with him and trying to change for our culture, we're, we're, we were a very PowerPoint driven culture, um, not necessarily knocking PowerPoint. It, it's, it's a tool um, and it generally has a good, uh, it's a good tool for the right job. Um, I think we were overusing it a little bit. And so now what we've shifted to doing is, um, Let's say we want to. We've got a, a feature idea, and we want to put it out there. Um, and typically, what we would come into a meeting, have the CEO in the room, and other product managers, etc., and step through a PowerPoint deck, pitch the idea, etc. And now, what we're doing is creating that, like almost like a press release. It's not a press release. We have no standard as far as what we've got to do, but it's it's just putting the the opportunity 
to have all of your thoughts down on a single piece of paper. And then we jump into the meeting and everybody turns the cameras off, turns their mics off, and you just go read the document. That's how you start out the meeting. Depending on the, the size of that document, maybe it's just a five-minute read, maybe it's a 30-minute read. But everybody is stepping through the documents. They throw their questions in there in real time. They're able to individually assimilate all of this information. Then we come out of it. Then we have a discussion. And, it, and it's not like, hey, we got to step through every one of these questions. It's like, who believes they have a critical question that needs to be answered about this to, to make a decision moving forward or something to that effect? Like o- almost like a powerful question, but it really gives the prioritization on the person who put the question in there. Like, yeah, I really do think this is important. We should talk about it. And um, I, I just kind of want to throw out when, again, thinking about your over communication, I found that super valuable, just having the opportunity to really think through these things. Mm-hmm. And then in particular, at the end, every document, one of the, the, the templates or the, the standardizations that we're making is it has to have an FAQ. It has to have an appendix at the end. And it really makes you think about, OK, well, what are those questions that people are likely going to ask? Well, fuck it. Why don't I just go ahead and put the question and the answer right in the document so they don't even have to answer that question? Oh, I missed this area of the document. I might want to flush this out a little bit more because it's not conveying enough information. And not that over-documentation is a good thing, and I promise I'll end this rant in just a second, but it... What it really forces you to think through the thing, those common questions, think through holistically the idea that you're putting out there. And then you just have this nice standalone artifact that does stand on its own. It's not this deck where it needed you to lead the interaction and guide everybody through it. And it allows everybody to assimilate that information in a slightly different way. Um, and then cool, just go and attach it to the JIRA item or whatever your tool of choice is. And now you've got you know the, the concept document directly attached to the item before you're even started with it. Hmm. Yeah, that that definitely resonates with me. I I've been using the that Amazon style press release thing for for a little while, uh, and I I've been using it again recently in the last couple of months uh, again because we've been shipping some stuff inside the academy, um, and I, I love it. And for pretty much all the reasons that you mentioned, that you know it, it's something you can take away and you can read. It doesn't take as long as the presentation. Uh, thinking through and writing the FAQ uh, forces you to think about the perspective of the people reading the document. Uh, I, I think it's fantastic. Um, and yeah, I mean, what, what we often do internally is that I'll just write it up in like a Google Doc and then send it out to everybody and they can comment on it. And it's like, I mean, you can get comments of everything from there's a typo and a punctuation error to like this sentence doesn't make sense. Can you explain what you mean by this? Um, or even a proposal of like, just make this quick edit to, I don't know, this doesn't sound like a good idea. And maybe we talk about like, why? Or, you know, what's the business case behind it? That kind of a thing. Um, I, I think we we over, not even over communicate. It's just like the amount of information that needs to be necessary to start a project inside most organizations is absurd to me. Um, and part of the challenge, I think, is that very often what happens is that if it becomes expensive to start a project, what it means is that the project itself needs to be very expensive, uh, like in terms of the outcome, like it, it needs to have a high return. And the best way to do that usually is to throw a ton of stuff inside it. And so you get these ginormous, like sort of creaking along kind of projects that are starting to try to solve all the world's problems instead of this tiny little thing that would take, you know, a team two months to do and it would make us millions. Um, and so I think that this kind of an approach is is really, really quite helpful because you could write a short press release and maybe even as as I've seen in some product organizations doing saying, 
well, what do we need to run a first kind of validation cycle on this? Oh, we need one team for three weeks um, or four teams for a quarter. Okay, cool. Now we've got some kind of, you know, we can weigh the capacity and say, given the capacity we have available, we would invest in the following things. Um, and that connects a little bit nicely back to what I was saying about the different sort of investment portfolios. Some of these are super risky. And so we would visualize them on the level two system as different, maybe a color or like a different swim lane or something. Uh, and then you have other things that are like, you know, these are just kind of standard run the business stuff that we have to do. We're pretty certain that the outcome will be what we think it is. It's not massively risky, but it's also not massively high return. And we want to just keep ticking through these things because that's our bread and butter and that's how we make money. Um, and, and another piece of nuance with this is that I think often you get this kind of disconnect in the organization. So the, the reality is that 90% of your money probably comes from things that you do right now rather than the next thing that you're going to ship, right? Um, and of course, there are nuances in this scenarios where that doesn't, you know, isn't the thing. Um, but the, the reality is that we tend to focus a lot of our energy from the leadership space on shipping the next new feature, at least in technology companies, and not so much on running the current business. Um, and so the challenge is that you actually get slower and worse at delivering your current project, which to me is an enormous risk, right? People come to you because of the thing you currently do. Uh, and if you're getting worse and worse and worse at it, somebody else can come and eat your lunch uh, and you're going to lose out. Um, and so taking some kind of a strategic and slightly balanced approach saying, okay, 20% on uh, you know new projects and features, 10% on super risky moonshots. Uh, and then the other 70%, like a lot of banks would do, on just running uh, the existing organization. That makes sense. And then we can also ask questions of saying, well, we know that in the future, those revenue streams might die, uh, or they're going to be need to be under certain cost pressures because you know efficiencies, AI, automation, whatever. So we need to try to drive down the costs of certain things so we can shift our focus to other places um, and that sort of a thing. So it's a much more kind of strategic approach than just a, a delivery or a theorizing um, about the outcome approach. So yeah, I, I think it's lots of interesting conversations to have around these topics, but it's it's important stuff. I think you could use those briefs, like you were saying though, Jeff, and you could almost like put that at a flight level and do some prioritization there. So like, are we, make, yeah. are we prioritizing the decisions that we need to make? Because let's just say you're Amazon, like how many meetings can Jeff Bezos really be in? Like what decisions does he really need to make? How many are we delegating? Like there's probably some that are way more important than others. And having the brief probably gives you enough information to say, yeah, that's the top. This is not that important. Like let's push that off to someone else. So I almost wonder like, is there an opportunity there to like increase the flow of your decision-making through your organization with yes. using the briefs? And I think specifically when you start to put something like the capacity piece in it, um, you can look at something. So this was quite common within a Spotify context, for example, um, the, each each with, within a certain context, if you wanted to spend, say, like a quarter or a year of time, then that needs to be prioritized at a certain level. If you want to spend a week or two, the team can just make that decision. Uh, and if you want to spend, you know, something within the quarterly bound, mm. uh, then the tribe leadership and the immediate departmental leadership can make that decision. Um, and of course, there can be exceptions where you still, you know, ask for input from higher up, but you know that you've got your, you know, you've got 10 team weeks to play with uh, over the course of your quarter. You can allocate however you want. The rest is reserved for project work that will be prioritized somewhere else. Uh, and so you can distribute it at your own team. You don't need the senior leadership weighing in on, or Jeff Bezos to weigh in on everything that a team does. Like it just, quite frankly, it just doesn't scale um, yep. if you do it that way. Um, and so 
kind of like Don Reinenson says, giving people sort of some constraints or some information that would help them to make better decisions, I, I think is a great way to to kind of decouple some of that stuff because it, it makes it a lot faster um, in many cases. Yeah, having those guardrails and not do, spending all the time figuring all that stuff out, but being willing to do the small things and like constantly learning, I think that's a really important thing to put in place too for organizations. Yeah, yeah super important. Yeah, I think it's fascinating because one of my favorite examples inside Spotify was this thing uh, feature called Discover Weekly, which I think a lot of people now know. Um, but that started as a Hack Week project with two people working on it. Uh, and it actually surprisingly took them quite a long time to convince the rest of the company that it was a good idea to ship. Um, there were a few people who were you know, quite senior in the organization who were quite skeptical of the idea uh, for a variety of different reasons. Um, and I mean, to their credit, it's now live and those people, you know, did change their mind and it's now gone live. Uh, but the fact that something like Hack Week existed meant that somebody could take a week. And I think the initial prototypes were built in a few days. Um, and yeah, we found something here. We think this is super interesting. What do you think? Uh, and when it did get released, the challenges were not like trying to build the actual feature, but more, can you scale it out to a hundred million users? Uh, because, you know, the algorithm for recommending is not necessarily the challenge, it's the compute uh, to do it and you know certain nuances of accuracy because what works for you and for me uh, might be helpful. But then what about people in different countries or different uh, languages, that kind of thing? How does that work? Are there sort of edge cases and stuff? So um, yeah, simple ways to test a small idea, see what works. And then when you know you're onto something, then bet big. But don't don't go all in on a hand that's super super risky unless you're completely back into in, backed into a corner and you have no options. And even then, I'm not sure that that's necessarily a good strategy. So, you know, hope is not a strategy. I believe is the one that I heard. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, that's a that's a good quote. Yeah. Uh, so, I know we're we're past our our time box here uh, a little bit, Cliff. Um, so at this time, I just want to ask, is there anything you you want to plug or promote to our listeners uh, before we wrap up the podcast? Sure. Um, I would say if you're curious about some of the stuff with flight levels that I've talked about, um, two best ways to find out about this. One is to go to our website, flightlevels.io, uh, and have a look around. Uh, specifically, there is a simple self-paced course. Uh, it's entirely online. Uh, you can start basically as soon as you're signed up. Uh, it is not particularly expensive either. Uh, the introduction to flight levels, just have a look. Um, and the other way is if you're curious to find out something else or you have a specific question, uh, hit me up on LinkedIn. Um, I love to chat to people. I, Yeah, it's super interesting to hear what people are doing with stuff, what challenges they face that maybe connect to the topics that we're talking about. Um, and I'd love to hear what you thought about. Maybe you want to discuss something or add a piece of nuance to what I said or something along those lines would be super interesting to chat. So reach out. Thank you for listening to the Agile Wire. We are consistently inspecting and adapting ourselves. We would appreciate feedback at feedback at theagilewire.com or on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Store. See you next time.